0: All right, would you open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we've arrived today at the final message in our series in Ephesians. And uh, in light of a pact and I would say a pretty awesome service to this point, uh, we are going to get right into God's Word today. So Ephesians chapter 6, today is one of those days where my introduction is that I have no introduction. Okay, we're getting right into God's Word. So, as we uh, wrap up our series in the book of Ephesians this morning, I want to give you uh, three diagnostic questions to help you evaluate what you're depending on to victoriously live the Christian life. So, three diagnostic questions to help you evaluate what you are depending on to live the victorious Christian life. So, here are the three questions that we're going to ask. You don't need to write them down right now, we're going to make our way through them as we go through this passage this morning. Uh, Here they are, question number one, is the gospel consuming all that I am? That's question number one, is the gospel consuming all that I am? Question number two, is prayer covering all that I do? Is prayer covering all that I do? And then question number three, is love driving all that I want? So three diagnostic questions to help you evaluate what you're depending on to live a victorious Christian life in Jesus Christ. So let's have our Bibles open, Ephesians chapter 6. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word as I begin reading in verse 14 and down through to the end. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know, uh, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. All right, let's start here with question number one. Three questions we're going to ask today. Here's the first. You can jot this down. Is the gospel consuming all that I am? Is the gospel consuming all that I am? Now, I want to be really careful here because anytime that we talk about spiritual warfare or the armor of God... One of the temptations that we have is to think that we need to know as much as we can possibly know about the enemy that we are fighting against and what his strategies are. And what you'll notice here as we read through this passage, what you really notice all throughout the Bible is that that is never the emphasis. The emphasis is never primarily on we need to know as much as we can about our enemy. Instead, the primary emphasis is always on knowing God. And that's the point of this passage here in Ephesians chapter 6. The point is not necessarily or not just simply for us to dissect every piece of the armor of God. The point here is for us to see that this armor belongs to God. This is the armor of God. And so... Paul's purpose here is to illustrate for us that in putting on this spiritual armor, we need to see how all-consuming, the work and the character of God needs to be within each of our lives. So this should give us great confidence moving forward. Listen to what the Bible says in Isaiah 59. Uh, The people had turned away from the justice and the righteousness of God. And Isaiah says, uh, chapter 59, verse 17, he, God, put on righteousness as a breastplate And a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So notice this here. God is putting on his armor. And his armor includes a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. So now as we come to Ephesians 6, what makes us strong in the Lord is that we are wearing God's armor. Our strength does not come from ourselves. Our strength in the battle does not come from our good works. Our strength does not even come from our ability to understand more about who our enemy is. Our strength comes from the reality that we are wearing the armor that God himself wears. So the point here in Ephesians 6 is to teach us that the way for us to be strong in the Lord, remember that's what he says back in verse 10, and that's the big idea that makes its way through the rest of this passage. The point here is for us to be strong in the Lord. And the way that we do that, the way that we overcome temptation in our lives The way that we endure in suffering, the way that we persevere in persecution, the way that you victoriously live the Christian life is to make sure that our lives are being consumed by who God is and the work that God has done for us in the gospel. So is the gospel consuming all that I am? Let's take a look at what Paul says here as he starts to describe the armor of God. Verse 14, he begins by saying, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So he says, again, stand therefore. That takes us back to the previous section that we just looked at last week. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, the belt, of course, goes around your midsection. Right? The belt goes around your core. And for a soldier who's wearing an armor like what Paul's about to describe, this belt is what held everything else in the core together. And so he calls it the belt of truth. Now, I want you to see here that, uh, that the truth is both a who and a what. So first of all, the truth is a who. It's Jesus And it's all that Jesus has done to make us right with God. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So uh, the truth is Jesus and everything he's done to make us right with God. So what Paul is saying here is that the essence of your being, the core of your identity, is held together by the reality of what Jesus has done for you. At the same time, the truth is also a what? It's the truth of God's word. Remember what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17? He's praying for himself. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for all disciples of all time, all believers who would follow him. And and he says, he prays, Father, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. So the truth is God's word. So we fasten on the belt of truth so that we can live according to all that God has said. So the belt of truth not only holds together who God has made us to be, but the belt of truth also guides the way that we live our life. It guides our families. It guides our jobs. It guides our retirements. It guides our choices about what to be entertained by. It guides our choices about who to be friends with. It guides what kind of influences we allow into our lives. So what Paul is saying here is that we start at the very core of who we are by putting on this belt of truth. One of the pieces of, uh, that the belt holds in place is what he calls next the breastplate of righteousness. So the breastplate was a piece of armor that was wrapped all the way around your upper body, both front and back. And, and its purpose was to protect your vital organs. And so Paul says here that we are to wrap ourselves completely in righteousness. It's the breastplate of righteousness. Not only wrapping ourselves completely in the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us, but primarily wrapping ourselves in a commitment to live rightly. You say, well, where do you get that? And, well, that's actually the way that Paul has used this word right or righteousness through the letter to the Ephesians. He's talking primarily about our commitment to walking in obedience to God. And so what he's saying here is, wrap yourself completely in a commitment to obey God in every part of your life. So notice this, because this is really, really important when we come to talk about spiritual warfare. One of the most powerful ways that you can fight against the attacks of the enemy is to live according to your identity your commitment to obeying God in every part of your life is a major part of what drives the enemy away in the battle. That's how we win the battle. So not only does this help win the battle in our life, but then he gives us another piece of the armor that helps us fight the battle alongside the people around us. Verse 15, he goes on, he says, The shoes that provide the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, A soldier's uh, shoes in the battle were absolutely critical. Um, If the soldier wasn't able to get a firm grip on the battleground, the firm grip on the ground that he's standing on, it could very well cost him his life. And so, on the one hand, uh, the shoes of the gospel of peace help us stand firm on the solid ground that we have peace with God through faith in Christ But on the other hand, the shoes also equip us with the readiness to tell others about the gospel that has saved us and that it's the same gospel that can save them. That for all of the other religions in the world that offer no eternal stability, that they too can stand on the solid ground of knowing that they are at peace with God if they will trust in Christ. So so get this. I, I just came to this realization this week as I was preparing for this, studying through this. This is absolutely amazing to me. As God's children, we have a message of peace in the middle of warfare. Isn't that awesome? Like there's this spiritual battle that's raging around us right now. We talked about this last week, right? That there's so much going on around us. Some that we see... Much of it that we don't see, much of it that we don't understand, so much of it that we don't even know about, and yet the reality is there's this battle that's going on all around us right now. And even now, at this moment, as God's children, saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we have the message of peace in the middle of the battle. So we have this message that needs to be delivered to people all around us to tell them that right now, at this moment, we are in a real battle with a real enemy that has eternal consequences. But one day, the war will come to an end. And if they repent and believe in Christ, they too can have the assurance of peace with God. They can stand on that ground. And aren't you thankful? That's the ground that we stand on right now in the midst of the battle. Like, it doesn't matter what you're going through right now. It doesn't matter how hard it is doesn't matter how difficult it is, like right now, as a follower of Jesus, as a child of God, you stand on the firm ground of the gospel, the firm ground of the finished work of Jesus in your life. Which brings us then to the fourth piece of the armor, verse 16. It's the shield of faith, and the shield of faith extinguishes all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, if we're allowed to have favorite pieces of the armor, this one might be mine, okay? Called it. Okay, this this one's mine because the shield of faith says that it doesn't matter what Satan fires at you, that if you are using the shield of faith, then you win. Notice what he says here, verse 16. He says, in all circumstances. And then later in verse 16, he says, you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So, in all circumstances, all the flaming darts of the evil one that are fired at you. In other words, the shield of faith protects you against everything the devil throws at you. So the shield was about the size of a small door. So it's, it's not that circular shield, you know, that you strap to the front of your arm. Don't think like Captain America. It's not that kind of shield, Okay. The shield was kind of the size of a small door, and, but it was big enough for the soldier to be completely covered in the battle. And the enemy would shoot arrows across the battlefield. But before the enemy shot the arrows, they would wrap them in a cloth and they would light the cloth on fire and then they would shoot the arrow across the battlefield so that whatever it landed on that was flammable, it would instantly go up in flames. The thing was, the shield was like pieces of wood that were pressed together and then covered in leather that was soaked in liquid so that when the enemy would send his fiery darts across the battlefield and that dart would hit the shield, it would instantly be extinguished when it hit the shield. That's the picture of what's happening right here. Satan, in the middle of this spiritual battle, is sending these flaming darts across the battlefield, these darts of unbelief and fear and worry and doubt and Anger and false guilt and lust and greed and selfishness and bitterness and gossip. Like all these things that Paul's been talking about through the course of Ephesians, right? He's just sending these flaming darts all across the battlefield nonstop. And the only way for us to overcome these flaming darts is not by trying to outmaneuver the enemy. It's not by trying to know as much about our enemy as we can possibly figure out. The only way for us to outmaneuver these flaming darts is to hide behind the shield of faith. Like, don't miss what this is saying. What he's saying here is that faith in God, faith in who God is, faith in the promises that God has made, that is powerful enough for every circumstance of life and against every attack of the enemy. So think about what you're going through right now. Think about the battles that you're fighting right now. Whatever it may be, it could be across a wide spectrum, probably different for every person in the room. You think about those battles and and the shield of faith, faith in God. Not just faith at the moment of your salvation, but faith in the day-to-day, faith in the moment-to-moment, faith in the -the experience-to-the-experience, coming back to God, believing in who God has said he is, believing in the promises that God has made. You use that shield of faith, and that extinguishes every flaming dart. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says that God is our shield. God is our shield. There is no circumstance too big. There is no attack too hard from which the shield of faith cannot protect you. Just as important is the next piece of armor. It's the helmet of salvation. This is similar to the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Think about it. The helmet is what you wear, of course, on your head. Your head, of course, is what holds your brain. And your brain, of course, is what gives you the ability to think, to process, to understand. And so what he's saying here, we we put on this helmet of salvation. This means that we need to let the truth of who we are in Christ and all that he has done to save us permeate the way that we think, which then changes the way that we live, which then changes the way that we see everything around us, which is why we also need the final piece of armor. He says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The sword that uh, Paul is referring to here is uh, really, um, it's not really a big long sword that you might think of at first. Uh, It's most often thought to be a much smaller, more compact sword that a soldier could very easily pull out of its sheath and start using not only to defend himself, but actually used to start fighting back. So this is considered to be something of an offensive weapon as well. What's really interesting here, though, is that Paul could have used a word in the original language uh, to refer to the written word of God. But instead, he actually uses a word here in the original language to refer to the spoken word of God. Now, of course, the spoken word of God is based on the written word of God. But what Paul is saying here is that one of the main ways that we start to fight back in the midst of the battle is to recite Scripture. Like just, just think of Jesus, Matthew chapter 4. He's, he's being led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit of God to be tempted by the devil. And how does Jesus fight the enemy? He quotes the Bible. He quotes Scripture in the midst of the battle. And the Bible says that the enemy left him and angels attended him. Listen, when we are in the midst of the battle, our willpower, our strength to keep going in the midst of it, that will not scare the enemy. When we're in the midst of the battle, our strength, our reputation, our courage, our creativity, our ingenuity, our this, our that, you fill in the blank with whatever you want. Like that stuff is not going to scare the enemy. The only thing that will scare the enemy in the midst of the battle is the word of God. And when we pull this sword out of its sheath and we start using it to fight, that's when the enemy has to flee. Now my question is this. What makes this word so powerful? What makes this word so strong that in the midst of a battle, it can do that? Listen, it's powerful. Notice how Paul describes it here. It's powerful because it is the sword of who? The sword of the Spirit. So when you start speaking God's word into your temptations when you start speaking God's word into your worries, into your fears, into your battles, into whatever it is that you happen to be going through, then you are relying on the power of the Holy Spirit of God to take his two-edged sword and fight the enemy for you. Like, understand, loved ones, this is so important, okay? Hear this so clearly. Our ability to overcome the enemy will always be directly proportionate to our knowledge of God's word. Let me say that again. Our ability to overcome the enemy will always be directly proportionate to our knowledge of God's word. You want to live a victorious Christian life? You got to know God's word. Like You've got to know what God has said. You've got to know what God has said about who he is. You've got to know what God has said about who you are. You've got to know what God has said that he has done for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in his atoning death in your place and for your sins. You've got to know how to fight this battle. You've got to know the promises that you can stand on. Our ability to overcome the enemy in the midst of the battle will always be directly proportionate to our knowledge of God's word. You want to win? You've got to know the word. Here's, listen, here's what all of this comes down to. Putting on the armor of God is basically wrapping your entire life in the gospel. It's wrapping your entire life in the work that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So that means then that our victory comes not from knowing who we fight. Our victory comes from knowing who fights for us. See, this is why a preoccupation with the devil or with demons or with spiritual warfare or with everything else consumed and related to these things, that's not a good idea. Like, that's not spiritually healthy to be consumed and, and buy all of those things. It's all you think about. It's all you talk about. It's all you read about. It's all you watch on YouTube. It's all you do. Like, You just think about that because the way that we fight Satan is by covering who we are and all that we do with the truth of the gospel. You want to know what the armor is? The armor is our commitment to living in obedience to God. It's a commitment to holiness. It's a commitment to living out your identity in Christ by the power that God himself gives us. That's how we fight the enemy. So the first question we need to ask as we evaluate what you're depending on to live victoriously in Christ. Is the gospel consuming all that I am? Here's question number two. Is prayer covering all that I do? Is prayer covering all that I do? I want to show you two reasons here why a prayer needs to cover all that we do. The first reason is this, because prayer strengthens me to stand firm in the gospel. Prayer strengthens me to stand firm in the gospel. You see here that he mentions prayer four times in verse 18. Twice he says prayer. Obviously that's calling out to God for help. But twice he also says supplication. Supplication is telling God what you need with a great sense of urgency. It's the same word that, um, it it comes from the same word that's used in Luke chapter 5 and verse 12 to describe when a leper came to Jesus and it says that this leper fell on his face before Jesus and and he begged Jesus to make him clean. That's the idea behind supplication. It's begging God to work on our behalf, begging God to do something that, that we can't do. Like this is a no holds barred. God Here's the battle that I'm in. God, I can't do this. God, I need you. God, I need your strength. God, I need your help. God, I need you to fight this battle for me kind of prayer. Like that's what we're calling out to God for. Now, what's so powerful about this is that Paul actually teaches us how to pray in the midst of the battle. I want you to see this because this is absolutely golden. He teaches us how to pray. Notice, first of all, he says we pray at all times. Verse 18, he says praying at all times in the spirit. And a little bit later in verse 18, he also says, with all perseverance. We talked about this a little bit last week. The battle never stops, right? Like it just never stops. It's ongoing. The enemy is always prowling around, looking for a way in, which is why we never take off the armor of God. And because that's true, we need to understand then that battle prayer is constant prayer. Battle prayer is constant prayer. We persevere in prayer. Now the question is, how do you do that? Because isn't it true, like, like prayer is hard, right? How many would agree with that? Prayer is just hard sometimes and, and there 's moments in our life where we 're going through things things are good God is blessing we can see god 's work uh, all around us and, and we 're thankful for that and sometimes that makes prayer maybe a little bit easier but even then it 's pretty hard sometimes we go through difficult things in our life and that just compels us into the presence of God a lot quicker and, and we get there but even then it can be hard to keep coming back because sometimes we just feel like we 're asking God for the same things over and over and over again so how is it that you persevere in prayer. If battle prayer is constant prayer, then how do we constantly pray? Well, notice what he says here in verse 18. He tells us how. He says, by praying in the Spirit. We persevere by relying on the strength and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to help us. When we depend on our own strength to keep coming back into the presence of God, it's not going to work the way that we want it to. It's going to get frustrating. It's going to get hard. We're going to get get tossed around. And so we come back and we pray in the Spirit. We depend on the strength and wisdom of the Spirit of God to help us. So not only do we pray at all times, but then notice this too. we, We also pray for all things. Again, he says in verse 18, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert. Can I just remind you God loves it when we pray about all things? God God loves it when you pray about everything, and he loves it when you keep asking him, when you keep coming back to him, keep expressing your faith and trust in him. You know, sometimes we tend to think that the battle only affects us when we're trying to read our Bibles or or when we're trying to pray consistently or when we're trying to uh, tell somebody else about Jesus as if that's only when the battle rages around us, but that's one of the traps of the enemy, isn't it? Like we need to see that, that this spiritual battle that's going on impacts everything around us. That's why he says, keep alert, don't give up, pray about everything, which helps us understand that not only do we pray at all times and pray for all things, but then notice this third, we pray for all the saints. That's the end of verse 18. And, and again, isn't it so true that often our default reaction is just to pray for ourselves in the struggles that we're going through because that's, that's our life, right? And we should pray for that. We need to pray for that. But just think about what he's saying here. Brothers and sisters in Christ making supplication, like begging God on behalf of one another. I Think of a brother in Christ who's part of one of our sister churches. He's on staff at Harvest Muskoka. His name is Matt King and he's been going through a battle of monumental proportions in his own life right now. A few weeks ago, he's getting up and Uh, getting ready for church one morning. He wasn't feeling that great, and it wasn't long uh, that morning before he lost complete control of his body. He couldn't speak, couldn't do anything. He was immediately rushed to the hospital. He was then airlifted to Toronto and hooked up to a ventilator, hooked up to all sorts of machines. Doctors had no idea. He's, He's just laying there. They have no idea why his body is just shutting down on him. Got to the point where they had no clarity, so they had to do a spinal tap and And so he's still in the hospital, and so all that happens. And the call goes out from Muskoka not that long ago to pray for Matt and his wife Becky and their young family, and and things were up in the air. Nobody really knew what was going to happen. and So here we are now a little bit later, and uh, by all appearances, Matt is slowly recovering. He's moving in the right direction, even though his doctors still have no idea what's going on. This is the idea. When a brother or sister in Christ is in the midst of their battle, it's not just their battle anymore. It becomes our battle. Brothers and sisters in Christ making supplication for all the saints because prayer strengthens us to stand firm in the gospel. Like when you're lying on your back in a hospital bed within inches of your life and you don't know why. You need something solid to stand on. You need the firm ground of the gospel. And prayer is the power that strengthens us to stand on that ground. We also see here, secondly, that uh, prayer strengthens me to declare the gospel. Verse 19, he's continuing on the theme of prayer. He says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak notice this. Paul alludes to this four times here. This is a gospel that is to be spoken, to be proclaimed, to be declared. Twice he says here that he's praying that he will do this boldly. That word boldly indicates a manner of speaking in which a person is not concerned about the consequences that will come for proclaiming the message that they do. So what Paul is saying here is, is I have this message and I can't keep this message to myself. Like I need to tell more people about this message, and when I do, my main concern is not the consequences that are going to come to me for proclaiming this message about Jesus. Paul says, I'm not concerned about the suffering that's going to come my way as a result of me declaring to other people the hope that is in Christ. And he says, I'm ready to receive that, so much so that he has become what he calls an ambassador in chains. In other words, he is suffering because he's a messenger for Jesus, God's people declaring the gospel is not something the enemy wants because that's how the enemy loses ground. And so when you tell the gospel to a friend... Or when you speak the gospel into the life of a brother or sister in Christ to help them walk in obedience. Like like just think for a second of all the conversations that happen even just here on a weekend after a service. Like you're standing here maybe after the service is over and you're talking to somebody else about about what you're going through in your life and and that person is speaking back to you the truth of the gospel, the truth of the promises of God and, and encouraging you to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Like you're speaking the truth of God's word into one another's life or, or you're standing there and, and someone else is telling you their thing and you're speaking that truth into their life like when that happens we need to understand that the enemy is committed to fighting back which means that sometimes the battle will take us to places that are hard they will take us to places that are uncomfortable similar to the chains that Paul was wearing as he writes this like understand, loved ones, when you experience consequences or when you endure hardship because you have shared the gospel in love and with boldness, that is not always an indication that you have done something wrong. Like sometimes we have this mindset, don't we, that, that when we start to get pushback for telling somebody else about the gospel, that, that maybe then we need to pull back or we need to lighten up or we need to, to be quiet for a little bit and, and maybe not say anything for a while. But understand, listen, we need to realign our expectations, right? We need to to put our expectations in the place where God's word tells us to put them. Listen, just because you're going through some hardship doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong. In fact, it probably means that you're doing something very right. So we continue to share the gospel boldly, realizing that there may be consequences, there probably will be consequences that come when we do of some kind. And what I find so compelling here is that when Paul asks the believers to pray for him, he's not asking for them to pray for his freedom from his chains. He's asking them to pray for the freedom of the gospel to keep advancing. Like he says, pray, for, pray not for freedom from persecution, pray for freedom for proclamation. So the question then, is it wrong for us to pray for freedom from the persecution? Well, no, of course not. We should pray for that. There's nothing wrong with praying for that. But the believer who understands that we are in wartime will pray alongside of that, perhaps even pray before that and pray, God, please use this hardship. God, please use these chains that I'm experiencing right now. Use this difficulty that I'm going through right now as a direct result of proclaiming the gospel to these people. And God, use these chains as a way to open more doors for the gospel to keep advancing through me. Prayer is the power that strengthens us to declare the gospel, even in spite of the consequences that may come. John Piper said it like this. I've shared the first part of this quote with you before. Here's the greater context behind it. He says, We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Life is war. It's not all it is, but it is certainly that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for anything and everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Three questions. Three questions. Question number one, is the gospel consuming all of my life? Question number two, is prayer covering all that I do? And then finally, question number three, is love driving all that I want? Is love driving all that I want? These last few verses are uh, not just concluding thoughts to this letter. They're, I think, genuine expressions of love from Paul toward these people. Verse 21, Paul says that he's sending Etychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, to carry on the work among these people. And it's even thought that Etychicus may have stayed in Ephesus for a while afterwards to answer questions that the people may have had about the letter that Paul has just written them. And that's how much Paul cares about them. Like He wants them to keep growing in their understanding of who they are and how they should live because of the work of Christ within their life. Loved ones, this is a lifelong and eternal journey that we are on together. Like we need to keep that in front of us. This is a lifelong and eternal journey that we are walking in together. So let's commit again to loving each other by growing together in our understanding of who we are and how we are to live in Christ, growing in our understanding of who God is and what he has done for us in the gospel. And how do we do that? He says here, we do it by encouraging one another. It's what he says in verses 22 and 23, that that they would know the peace and the love of God and grow in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the final thing that he does here to close out this letter, it's probably the greatest act of love that he could ever give to them. He points them all back to Jesus. Verse 23. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Listen, friends, no matter what you go through in this life, if you are a child of God, saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then there is nothing in all of this world, nothing in all of this universe that will ever be able to take that love away from you in Christ Jesus. It is love incorruptible. That's why no matter what circumstance or battle you are in right now, listen, Jesus is the only incorruptible, unchanging, never-failing always and forever love that you can totally depend on. So today, I want to end our journey through Ephesians in the same place that Paul does. I want to draw your attention one more time to this gospel love that God has for you. As we've seen all the way through this letter, we have one singular problem. It's called sin. And though we see the impact of sin on many horizontal levels, it is first and foremost a vertical problem. Our sin has separated us from a holy God. As Paul says in chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. He says we were living according to the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of our bodies and minds and we were utterly and rightfully destined for the holy and just wrath of God. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and he has raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves it is the gift of God so that no one should boast Listen, you are chosen, you are holy, blameless, loved, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, lavished, sealed and inheritors. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places and it is all to the praise of his glorious grace. And so, amen. And so now, because of who you are in Christ and because of all that God has done for you in him, walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace with all humility and gentleness. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And finally, brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And now, grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible.